Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at the Summit Church. I see a lot of new faces. Uh, so if I haven't met you yet, it's good to meet you informally. I'd love to meet you afterwards. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, tonight, here's what we're doing. We are wrapping up what's been a four-month series in the books of First and Second Timothy called Legacy. And knowing that we have so many new faces, uh, I know probably some of you feel like you know, you're showing up and it's like you're starting a 400-page book on page 399 and so you're about to tune out. But before you tune out, uh, let me tell you that what we're going to talk about tonight and what Paul is going to write about tonight is going to be tremendously relevant to your life and mine because what Paul is going to talk about is something that we all have in common. It's that we know other people and that we have difficulties with other people. So before you tune out, we're going to talk about something that no matter what you believe about God or what your religious background is, uh, you have interaction with. We all have interaction with other people, right? Amen? Amen? Okay, good. So here's what Paul is going to do. Paul, one of the first followers of Jesus, has been arrested and has been put in prison and is about to be killed. And anticipating his death, he is writing a final letter to, to one of his closest friends saying what sort of legacy he desires to leave behind him. And what we're going to look at tonight are the final words of the final paragraphs of the final, uh, of the final letter that this man, Paul, would ever write uh, before he's executed. He's beheaded just after writing these words. Now, here's what's interesting, is that Paul would use the final words of the final paragraphs of the final letter he would ever write to talk about other people, right? Because if it's me and I'm in prison, I'm going to talk about me, and I'm going to talk about how handsome I thought I was and how intelligent I thought I was and how brave I was in the face of danger, especially if I'm writing the Bible, because I know, you know, like a lot of people are going to read it and I want to be remembered in that way. But, but Paul was the type of guy who cared much more about other people than he did his own reputation. And so what he spent his time doing in these final paragraphs is tell, talk about other people. Now, here's why. If you, if you haven't been with us, the entire idea of these letters has been that God desires for you and for me to leave in our wake a godly legacy. It, what we've said is it's not a matter of if you'll leave a legacy, it's a matter of what kind of legacy you will leave behind you in, in the lives of the most important people that you interact with on a regular basis. And what Paul said is, strive and yearn to leave a godly legacy in your wake. And, and if you haven't picked up on it, what he's been saying is, uh, there's certain rhythms that help you obtain leaving that legacy behind you. What, what Paul desires for you and for me is for us to believe something, for us to belong to something, and for us to take part in something. So what Paul's been saying over and over and over again is, is believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus is who he said he is. Believe that he is the son of God who lived the life we should have lived, died the death that we should have died, conquered the grave, and through him we can have peace with God. Don't just believe, but belong to the church. And so commit to the church, God's family, where you come alongside other people who are pursuing Jesus and will push you to pursue Jesus. And don't just believe and belong, but take part in the mission of God of seeing the world transformed and know the love of Jesus Christ. Believe, belong, and take part. And what Paul said is, if we can embody those rhythms in our lives, the consequence and the natural result of that will be a godly legacy. That's sort of a summary of what we've talked about for four months. Now, here's why Paul talks about other people in his conclusion. It's because if we really want to do that, there, there, there's barriers that come up to us actually having that 
happen. And, and one of the most frequent barriers to us leaving a legacy like that and us embodying the rhythms of the gospel, community, and mission, the, one of the greatest barriers is other people. It's other people. And by that, I mean that probably any of you could come up and you could tell me a story uh, about somebody that you trusted, a guy that you trusted, a family member that you trusted who did something that makes it very hard for you to believe God is who he says he is in the Bible. And you could probably tell me about some girl that you trusted uh, who you found out was talking behind your back and you were part of the same church and, and, and sort of stabbed you in the back and it made you very hard and very reluctant for you to commit to the church. And you can probably tell me about, you know, two weird guys who were wearing ties who showed up at your door like at 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning and you were sleeping in and they woke you up to, you know, all of a sudden tell you about heaven and hell. And you started saying, like, if this is what the mission of God is all about, like people knocking on my door at 8 a.m. and to get into, like, the deepest spiritual conversation out of nowhere, I don't want, I don't want anything to do with that. What, what Paul understands is one of the greatest barriers to you and I leaving a godly legacy in our wake is other people, other people that we trusted, other people that we knew well, other people that were our family, other people that we thought we could depend on, other people who from a distance seemed like they had it all together. But once we got close to them, their lives blew up and in our lives became collateral damage as their lives were blowing up. And as this man writes from prison, and as this man awaits his execution, and as his greatest desire for you and for me is to leave in our wake a godly legacy, to embody the rhythms of the gospel, the church, and living on mission to the world, he anticipates the fact that every single one of us will come with a story about a person that makes us reluctant to want to give our lives to that. And anticipating that, what he's going to give us tonight is a final filter and lens through which we can discern and understand the relationships that we have around us, our past experiences, our present relationships, and the relationships that are to come so that we would leave the legacy that God has for us. All right, you ready to see what he writes? Let's look at verse 9. Here's what Paul writes. He says this, Do your best to come to me soon. What Paul is saying is, if you want to see me alive, you need to come as soon as possible. If any of you have had a dying relative, uh, maybe you'll get a phone call and it says, hey, if you want to see your father alive again, you need to leave now. This is Paul, that's, like, that's that call from Paul to Timothy. If you want to see me alive again, you need to come now. Verse 10, what he's going to do here is he's going to unpack and he's just going to jump into eight different people out of nowhere. It's gonna, you're going to be wondering, like, how, what can I learn from a list of eight names? But here's what he writes. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychius I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he is strongly opposed to our message. So he's gone through eight names. We don't have time to go through all eight, but here's what I want to do tonight, is I want to look at the three guys that he tells us the most about. The three guys that he tells us the most about. And what I want us to do is not just learn about these guys, but I want you to ask yourself a question as we go through these names. I want you to ask yourself this. Who do I most identify with here? Okay, 
who is it that I most relate to after I learn a little bit more about these guys? We have three, we have three options, okay? The first is a guy named Demas, and we find him in verse 10. Paul says this, For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Galatia. So Demas was a guy who hung out with Paul. Uh, they did ministry together. They seemed, seemed like he was once very useful to Paul, but when the stakes were raised and when it became inconvenient for Demas to stick alongside Paul, he deserted him when, the things, when things got tough. He left. This is like the friend uh, who disappoints you. They don't mean anything by it, but it just happens. When, when, when it's going to cost them something for them to be your friend, they're very quick to just desert you. They're unintentionally disappointing. This, this is like the friend who offers, says, anytime you need a ride to the airport, just let me know. You're like, great, like I need a ride next Wednesday. It's almost Thanksgiving. But the problem is, is like I'm leaving at 6 a.m. And they're like, I'm not available then. You know, I've got like this work thing, and I, I won't be available. They're, they're friends with you when it's completely convenient to them. This is the person who tells you, you can call me anytime you need anything. And you actually took them up on that offer. And when you call them, they don't return your calls. When you text them, they don't return your texts. When you need them to sacrifice for you, they won't sacrifice. These are people who disappoint you, not because of what they do to you, but because what they don't do for you. Okay, so that's option number one unintentionally disappointing guy, okay? Option number two is a guy named Alexander. We'll call him Alex in verse 14. No offense to the Alexes in the room. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. So if Demas was unintentionally disappointing, Alexander was intentionally disappointing. He was malicious. Uh, Scholars tell us that Alex was the guy who turned over Paul to the Roman authorities. And so as they were trying to find out where Paul was, Alex was the guy who who pointed them to Paul and Paul got arrested. He got put on trial. Uh, He's now in prison and he's about to be killed because of this guy. This is the type of person who is maliciously disappointing to you. When I think about it, it's like what happens if you have a bad breakup with a of a crazy ex-girlfriend and you know she wouldn't let you hang out with your friends so you break up and then she starts writing like these paragraph after paragraph long passages about you on your Facebook wall and she takes the stuff that like you left over at her house and she burns it in your front yard and you're like I saw that coming you know it's not like I didn't see that coming it's like I saw that coming that didn't surprise me you were intentionally disappointing and malicious to me okay option number one unintentionally disappointing. Option number two, intentionally disappointing. Here's option number three, a guy named Mark. We learn about him in verse 11. It says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now, this seems very obvious, right? Because if my options are, you know, unintentionally disappointing, intentionally disappointing, and the dude who's useful for ministry, I will take door number three, right? But you don't know the entire story of Mark. We, we learn about Mark in a couple of other passages in the Bible. Mark here is the same Mark who wrote the book of the Bible called Mark. That's one of the Gospels in the New Testament. And at the end of the book of Mark, we, see our first, we have our first experience with him when Jesus is about to get arrested. And these Roman authorities come to him and they're arresting Jesus. And Mark, who, who you know, has committed his life to Jesus, is so terrified of being arrested alongside Jesus, he totally, he totally ditches Jesus. And he runs away. And he runs away so quickly that a Roman authority reaches out and grabs him and grabs him by his clothes. And Mark is making such a beeline to get away from Jesus that his clothes come off. And he literally doesn't stop. He runs away butt naked from Jesus. Okay? 
That's story number one. Story number two comes in Acts. Mark is a guy who, who, you know, he thinks he's been restored after ditching Jesus, and he commits to come alongside Paul. And he's like, man, I'm committed to the mission that you are giving your life to. Let's go plant churches. We're in this thing together. And so Paul's like, okay, come on, let's go. Let's do this thing. And he gets like a week in, and Mark's like, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. And he goes home. And Paul is so upset about that, he doesn't want Mark to come, come alongside him anymore. He says, I'm done with this guy. I don't want, he, Mark tries to rejoin him, and he says, no. No, I don't want you. I don't trust you anymore. So here's the thing. Here's really your options, okay? Option number one is an, is unintentionally disappointing guy. Option number two is intentionally disappointing guy. And, and option number three is the naked dude who deserted Jesus and Paul. Who do you pick? Here's the reason I asked the question. Here's the reason I asked the question. It's because for many of us, we tend to think that there's a lot of different kinds of people. So, so we take a personality test, and it tells us how we're one of 87 different types of people, or it tells you you're like a golden retriever or a turtle or a bunny rabbit or something like that. I always make sure I never answer the questions where I would end up being a bunny rabbit, right? I just stack the deck that way, right? So we, we feel like, hey, there's 87 different types of people. Or, or we even say, hey, you know what? There's two types of people. There's good people and there's bad people. And you're like, well, how do you tell, you know, which from which? Well, like, I'm in the good category, and the people who aren't like me are in the bad category. Here's what Paul's saying is there are two kinds of people. It's not good people and bad people. There's bad people who desperately need God's grace. And there's bad people who have received God's grace. That's it. That's the summary of humanity right there. And that's what differentiated Mark from those other guys. It wasn't that he had a perfect religious resume. It wasn't that he had his life together. It wasn't that he had made a serious blunder before. I mean, they're recorded over and over and over again in the scriptures. He was a jacked up, sinful, messed up dude. But what we don't see behind the scenes is that he repented. He went to Paul. He asked for forgiveness. And he was forgiven and restored. Instead of being known and identified in the scriptures as the guy who deserted Jesus, the guy who deserted Paul, he is known as being useful for the ministry. What Paul's saying is there aren't good people and bad people. There are bad people who desperately need God's grace, and there's bad people who have received God's grace. And because of that, then, we should have a lens and anticipate the fact that when we look at humanity, we should anticipate and be ready when we look at the relationships around us to know that everybody, everybody disappoints. Everybody disappoints. Every single person disappoints. See, here's why this is so important. It's because what Paul wants for us, as, as he desires that we live out and have a godly legacy passed on, as we embody those rhythms of gospel community mission, as, as he knows that those things will be derailed by unhealthy and dysfunctional relationships that all of us have experienced and are likely to experience again. What he wants us to do is to have a realistic lens through which we discern and relate to other people. He does. And here's what he says. He says, because everybody disappoints, because everybody is in need of grace, you need to have the lens when you look at the people in your life of realistic expectations. You need to have realistic expectations. Because all of us, what we tend to do is put people, friends, we tend to put uh, Religious figures, we tend to put bosses and mentors. We tend to put uh, boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands and wives on such pedestals that we are disappointed by other people again and again 
and again and again. And many of you, I'm just honest, you just live a story of being devastated by relationships on a day-in, day-out basis over and over and over and over again. And it's because you've come to them and expected such perfection that you come and you crush the people in your life and in your sphere of influence with your expectations. And it is impossible, it is impossible for them to meet the expectations that you put on them. And what Paul says is everybody disappoints. Everybody needs grace, including you. And because of that, look at people through a lens of realistic expectations. Not just that, but look at people through a lens of grace. See, here's what happens. Here's what happens. After you've lived that story over and over and over again, you get close to people and they wrong you. You you get into a relationship and you get deserted. After you've experienced that over and over and over again, what happens is you grow callous, you grow cold, and you swing to the opposite side. And you say, okay, I tried getting close to people. I tried doing life with people. I tried committing my life to other people. And it got me burned again and again and again. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to isolate myself. I'm going to keep everybody at an arm's distance. You know what I'm going to do? Anytime I get in a conversation, I'm going to talk about the weather and I'm going to talk about sports and I'm going to talk about a movie that I saw, but I'm not going to talk about anything of any significance whatsoever. I'm not going to let anybody in because I saw where that got me. And what Paul says is if everybody disappoints, if everybody needs grace, including you, that what you're meant to do is not be surprised when people wrong you, not be surprised when people disappoint you, not be devastated and go into your room and cry every single time somebody does the smallest thing wrong for you but you understand the human condition, you understand what the scriptures teach, and you are eager to fight for relationships, and you are eager to show and extend grace to others. And why? Why? Because God has extended grace to you. Because God has extended grace to you if you are in Christ. And one of the best indicators of the fact that you understand the grace that has been extended to you is your willingness and eagerness to extend it to others because you understand the magnitude of what you have been forgiven of. Everybody disappoints. Everybody. And because of that, we should have a lens of realistic expectations when we relate to others, as well as a lens of grace that we look through and that we're eager to forgive and to restore relationships. Now, just in case, just in case you don't think Paul maybe has the credentials to say that, maybe you think he's making blanket statements, uh, maybe you think he's a little callous, here's what he says in verse 16. He says, In my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Now, here's the way the Roman judicial system worked. It worked a lot like uh, the way our judicial system works, that when somebody was arrested, they were put on trial. Uh, There was sort of a, uh, like a judge or or some sort of authority who would come in. He would rule on whether or not the trial should continue or if it should be tossed out. And so Paul, so what would happen is there would be a first offense and there would be a second offense. And the judge would determine, should it go from the first offense to the second offense? So what would happen is when somebody was put on trial, all these people would show up. And the people who were for this guy and the people that were against this guy, the judge would hear the case and then he would say, okay, I think this should continue or I think this should be tossed out. Now for Paul, here's what happened. He showed up for his trial to see if it should continue. And a lot of people showed up. The problem was the only people who showed up were against him. So you can imagine how embarrassing and devastating this would be that he's in there, all these people show up, and person after person after person after person says, I have a case against this guy. I have a case against this guy. I have a case against this guy. And in the end, when the judge asked for anybody for, nobody said a word. And as you can imagine for the judge hearing and seeing all this, when, when, when it's 100% against and 0% for, he passed it on from the first defense to the second defense. And the scholars will tell us that in the Roman system, when the trial would go from the first defense to the second defense, it meant for Paul that he was a dead man. 
And what's interesting, instead of saying, hey, you tell those bozos who didn't show up that I hate them and I will never forgive them. You tell those idiots that I'm done with them and I'm through them. When instead of saying, why me, God? Why did, why did this have to happen to me? You know what he says at the end of verse 16? He says this, may it not be charged against them. May it not be charged against them. Like, how can a man say this? How, how can a man who's been deserted by the best of his friends say something like this? It's because he grabbed hold of a single blazing truth that it's at the heart of this letter, that's at the heart of the Bible, that it's at the heart of the Christian faith. And here's what he says in verse 17, where he unpacks it for us. He says this, but the Lord, even though everybody deserted me, even though nobody stood beside me, verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Even though the best of my friends didn't show up, even though the worst of my enemies treated me worse than I would wish upon anybody, the Lord stood by me. So here's what Paul understood. Everybody disappoints. Every single person will disappoint you, except for one, and it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Every single person will disappoint you, except for one, and, and, and it's Jesus. I mean, I know that seems very simple, but that's the single blazing truth he wants us to grab a hold of. Everybody will disappoint other than Jesus. Now, if you like to think critically, if, if you like to ask tough questions of the Christian faith, this is one of those places where you ask one of those questions because you say, okay, so Jesus, you stood by Paul, but, but Paul right after this gets beheaded, right? Like something doesn't add up. And it's like Paul anticipates that question because here's what he says. He says, so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Here's what he says. He says, the Lord stood by me by giving me a greater cause that was worth sacrificing for. The, the Lord stood by me by giving me a greater cause that was worth me sacrificing my life for. And through the suffering, through the sacrifice, through the pain, through the difficulty, what Jesus gave me was an opportunity to give my life away and to make a major impact for him. And in the end, when I look at that, when I look at what I had to give up as opposed to what I gained and the opportunity to give my life away to his mission, it was worth it. It was absolutely worth it so that the Gentiles, so that the non-Christians may hear. He doesn't just say that, but he, he continues. He says, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He said, Jesus stood by me in this way also. Jesus stood by me through rescuing me, through rescuing me. Now, again, this is where you ask the question, like, you didn't get rescued, right? You got beheaded right after this. See, here's what Paul understood. Is his, he didn't understand rescue in the way we understand rescue. We understand rescue in terms of, you know, a movie that we go and see and somebody's about to be killed or about to die and somebody has a great plan in order to save them from dying. See, what, what happens, what that movie doesn't show you is eventually what happens. That person dies, right? They eventually die. And what Paul understands is that in his life and our lives as well, what we need is a more robust rescuing. What we need is not just to be saved from death miraculously because we're eventually going to die. We need something more substantial. What Paul says is that God rescued me from every evil deed. And here's what he meant by that. 
He, he meant everything that was done to him, not just everything that everybody else did to him, but everything that he did as well. Sins that he committed against other people, sins that he committed against God were forgiven through the work of Christ. And through Christ, he has obtained the greater rescue that he so desperately needed. See, God gave him something greater. God gave him something greater than being rescued from death. He, he was rescued from eternal death. He was given the greater rescue. And he says, in the end, when I come to die, when I come to pass on from death to life and to see God face to face and to receive the reward that I have pursued so much, in the end, I will say that it was worth it. And I received a greater reward than just having my life be continued for 20 more years. See, what Paul is saying at the very end of his life is this. He's saying that only Jesus satisfies and only Jesus won't disappoint. Only Jesus satisfies and only Jesus won't disappoint. And I know that's sort of churchy and I know that seems sort of like, you know, what we're supposed to say, but, but he lived it. He lived it. And, and if there's anything that I wish that could come, I was praying about it this week, and if there's anything that I wish that could come from this four-month series, it would be that you would grab a hold of that, that you would just believe and act on the fact that only Jesus satisfies and only Jesus doesn't disappoint. Because here's the thing, is that you and I are going to put our hope in something to satisfy and not disappoint us, right? I mean, for me, for example, before I became a believer, I lived a lot of different stories. I, I lived a story of putting my hope in, in the fact that, you know, maybe I could have a career that will let me have uh, more money than I have any idea, what to, any, uh, more money than I know what to do with. And that money, as you know, fails to purchase the, most, the things that will satisfy the most. I've lived that story. I've lived the story where I've hoped that the, the reputation and being praised by other people will ultimately satisfy. But you know what I learned? Is in an instant, in making a difficult decision, in taking a hard stance, in taking an unpopular stance, the favor and accolades of people can be taken away in a second. You know what I've experienced? I, I, I tried to find ultimate satisfaction and hope in relationships from those that are platonic, just from friends who, who will make me happy and, and satisfy me to those that are romantic to find the one who will complete me and finally make me happy in the way that I so yearn. And what you find is what Paul teaches here is that people are messed up, they're jacked up, they're sinful, and they disappoint time and time again. See, if you've lived long enough and you've tried to live out those stories, what you learn very quickly is, is that those things we put, that we hope will satisfy us, those things that we put our hope in, those things that we make ultimate in our lives, those things that we worship as God will be crucified. They will be crucified. And if your hope is in your job and your money, the reality is, is one day you will lose that job one way or the other, and you will despair. And if your hope is in the reputation that other people have, other people think of you, I mean, the reality is, is you're eventually going to come to a place where you're going to find out that not everybody likes you because everybody doesn't, and you will despair. And if your hope is finding the one who will complete you, I'm going to tell you, you'll never find that individual. You'll be disappointed time and time again. Spouses will walk out. Significant others will walk out. You will be disappointed time and time again, and you will despair. Every single God that we lift up will be crucified. And the Christian faith is no exception to that. See, what makes Christianity unique 
is not that the God of Christianity isn't crucified. It's that when he was crucified, that rather than his followers despairing, they rejoice because he conquered the grave and he proved himself worthy and and, uh, authoritative over sin, death, and Satan, the greatest enemies of the human race. And he proved himself worthy of our worship. He proved himself. And while every other God will be crucified, the God of Christianity was crucified and conquered the grave and proved himself worthy. See, that's why Paul could sit in prison and lose everything. He could lose his job. He could lose his money. He could lose his friends. He could lose his relationships. He could lose his reputation. And he could write that it was worth it that I could give up something that's good and temporary for something that's even better and eternal. For him, Jesus changed everything. It changed everything. And that's what, that's what he desires for you and for me as well. As we strive, as we strive to leave behind a godly legacy, it doesn't just happen, but it comes returning to the cross and to look at Jesus and say, you change everything. You change everything for me. And that wouldn't just be some sort of churchy, colloquial saying that you, you say because you heard somebody else say, but that you would live it out, that you would absorb it, that you would embody it, and that you would recognize it, that in the gospel, God has been gracious to you. And because of that, what that means is that anything that's been done to you, anything, as you think about leaving a legacy and you think about the things that you've done in your past, when you think about your present uncertainties, when you think about your future fears, when you see where you're headed and you say, I couldn't do that, that you would look to the graciousness of God and you would say, he has not judged me based on my works, but on the works of Christ. And he has chosen to love me in the gospel. I, I would pray that in the gospel, you would recognize that God has been good to you. And rather than being skeptical and rather than always anticipating something bad to happen and rather than always anticipating God to sort of screw up the good things that are going on in your life, you would instead be positive and you would understand that if God has met your most basic need in Jesus, if he has met your most basic need, then he is for your good in a way you could never be after your own good. My prayer for you, is you understand that in the gospel, God has been great for you. And because of that, then, it means that you don't have to be the type of person who, who's characterized by performing and you always get in public and you always talk about yourself because you have to talk about yourself for 30 minutes in order to prove how good you are and how accomplished you are and how much money you make and the type of job you have and what school you went to. Because when it really comes down to it, when you're alone, you feel inadequate. And what you would recognize is that Jesus has performed for you, and so you don't have to perform anymore. You can find your satisfaction in him. My prayer, as we think about the legacy that we leave behind us, is that we would understand that Jesus changes everything. He changes everything. And he will not disappoint. He will not leave or forsake you. He changes everything everything. And it's through clinging to him in the way that Paul clinged to him in the midst of losing everything that he proved himself to Paul and he proved himself to us again and again, worthy of our worship. And to know that to have everything apart from Jesus is to lose life. And to have only Jesus and to lose everything else is to gain everything. Here's how Paul concludes. Verse 19. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, 
who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. So all he's doing is he's saying his fair, final farewell. If you, if you read any more of the Bible, you would see that these are friends that he, he encountered in his time in ministry, and he's saying his final farewell as he gets ready to die. Verse 22, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. And with that, just a, few, just a short period of time after writing that final sentence, Paul would be taken out of his cell, he would be taken to an execution yard, and he would be beheaded. And that would be the end of his life. But he would pass from death to life, he would see his Savior face to face, and he would finally receive the reward that he sacrificed his life for. And I have no doubt that when he experienced it and tasted it, tasted it and, and felt the love of God in a way unparalleled to the way he had felt it before, he said, it was worth it. It was worth it. And in his way, he left a godly legacy that's passed on to the fact that the reason that we sit in this room is because of the work that Paul did 2,000 years ago. And the mission continues in us, the mission continues through us, and the gospel goes forward. Here's the way I want to wrap up tonight. I feel like the best way for us to honor Paul, uh, a man who loved us so much that he spent his final words talking about, you know, trying to help us out rather than writing about himself, is to celebrate the man that he gave his life to. Uh, to celebrate Jesus. Now, the way that we celebrate Jesus in the church is by celebrating communion. Uh, many of you may not be from a religious background, but communion is basically when you just break bread and you, and you uh, sip wine and you remember what Jesus has done on your behalf. The church has done this for 2,000 years. The church has done this for 2,000 years, all the way back to when Jesus did it himself. And he gathered his closest followers together. He took bread, he took wine. As they shared a meal together, he broke the bread. And he said, this represents my body that will be broken for you so that you can be forgiven of your sins. And he took, the, he took the wine and he poured it. And he said, the point of this wine represents the spilling of my blood for you so that you can have peace with God. And every time we break the bread, every time we partake of the cup, what we celebrate is that Jesus lived the life we should have lived, that he died the death we should have died, that he was resurrected from the grave. He was victorious on our behalf. And in him, we can finally have the reward that we so, we so yearn for, as well as we can pass on the legacy that we desire to leave, that we could never leave on our own. And so that's what we're going to celebrate tonight. Communion by its very nature is an invitation. So here's what I want to do. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, I want to invite you to celebrate and partake of communion. I want you to remember what Jesus has done for you. I want you to not move beyond it. I just want you to partake and celebrate that Jesus has lived for you, died for you, conquered the grave for you, so you can leave the legacy God has called you to live. If you don't follow Jesus, but you're interested in following Jesus, if you're kind of coming to a place where you're like, you know what, I'm ready to make this personal for me. I'm ready to make a decision. I'm ready to commit my life to Jesus. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to do that do that before God, and then come up and partake of communion. Have this be what solidifies your commitment to Jesus.